Mail. Unless you owe money, you're usually excited to get it. Opening a letter or a package can feel a lot like opening an early birthday present, but you do well to be wary of packages with no return addresses from unknown senders. What you find inside might just horrify or even kill you. Recently, actor Jared Leto has been in the news for his on-set antics while filming the movie Suicide Squad, but despite sending his co-stars rats, bullets, used condoms, sex toys, and a dead pig, as it so happens, he's been on the receiving end of getting an unwanted, gruesome gift, but this time, not from a friend, but a fan. In 2013, while being interviewed by a radio station in the United Kingdom, Jared expressed his gratitude for his incredibly committed and passionate fans and all the gifts they sent, saying he received some wonderful items. But he was rather quick to mention that among the regular fan mail, he had received some rather strange items as well. The strangest and most gruesome being a severed human ear. Fans thought he was joking upon first mention, but Jared later posted a picture of the ear to his Instagram as proof, saying he'd put a string through it and wore it around as a necklace. But perhaps the most unsettling part of the gift was the note attached to the ear that read, Are you listening? Jared captioned the Instagram post with his response saying he was indeed all ears. The brightest minds don't always focus on how they can contribute to something positive to society, but rather how they can hinder it. Take, for instance, a man who had a promising future even from early childhood. During his elementary days, he skipped two grades, and later on, his teachers quickly realized they were witnessing a mathematics prodigy. The man later went on to graduate from Harvard and taught at the University of California, Berkeley. His name was Ted Kaczynski. But despite his successes, Ted left his job at the university and moved into a rural Montana woods cabin in the early 1970s. He lived alone and had little human contact, growing a garden of his own vegetables, hunting his own meat, and using almost every waking hour reading books. It was during this time in his life that Ted developed a dark outlook of the American government and advances in technology. In 1978, he tried to reintegrate himself back into normal society, but after a breakup and being fired from his job, something in him seemed to snap. In 1978, a security guard at Northwestern University opened a suspicious package addressed to one of the school's professors and was met with an explosion of a homemade bomb. He survived the blast with only minor injuries, but over the next two decades, others wouldn't be so lucky. Between 1978 and 1995, various learning institutions and American Airlines received anonymous letter bombs, some that failed to detonate and some that unfortunately worked exactly as designed. All in all, three people were killed in the attacks and 23 were injured. The FBI nicknamed the unknown perpetrator the Unabomber. In a collective effort with the United States Postal Service, the FBI set up a massive investigation to try and trace the origin of the dangerous packages. But they had no luck until 1995, when a handwritten essay that would be later known as the Unabomber Manifesto was published. Ted Kaczynski's brother happened to read the document and thought the ideas presented in the essay, along with the handwriting, looked a lot like the work of his brother. 
Ted's brother went to the FBI with his suspicions and led authorities right to their Unabomber. After being arrested in 1996, Ted Kaczynski stood trial and pled guilty to 13 counts of federal bombing, and he was sentenced to four life terms in prison, in addition to 30 more years. He is still in prison, where he regularly opens and responds to letters from thousands of strangers. But unlike his victims, he has the comfort of knowing what's inside. With the convenience of online shipping, it seems like now, more than ever, we're receiving more and more delivered packages. However, it wasn't until January 1st, 1913, that Parcel Post became available to the public in the United States. But even then, citizens recognized the value of this new service, as the post office handled approximately 300 million parcels in the first six months of the service alone. People were sending everything from food to building materials, literally brick by brick. Maximum package weight had increased from 11 pounds to 20 to 50 pounds in just the first year. And it was around this time people started to get creative with exactly what they could mail. In February of 1914, five-year-old Mary Pierstorff was set to go visit her grandparents in a neighboring town in Idaho, but her parents were hesitant to pay the hefty price for a train ticket. It was then the Pierstorffs discovered a loophole in the parcel post regulations, and they realized it never said that children couldn't be mailed, and their daughter was just shy of the 50-pound limit, coming in at 48 and a half pounds. So May's father took her to the post office with 53 cents worth of postage stamps stuck to her coat, and she was transported in the train's package car to Lewiston, Idaho, where she was successfully delivered to her grandparents in time for lunch. After several news outlets publicized the story, several more parents left their children and even small babies in the care of the postmen, mailing them to various relatives. However, six years later, it became illegal to send humans through parcel post as people realized the possible dangers and liabilities involved with sending your children off with a stranger. It seems a fair share of celebrities have had strange encounters with the fan mail they receive, and even teen heartthrobs aren't immune to the phenomenon. Back in 2009, pop rock band the Jonas Brothers were being interviewed when they mentioned the armfuls of gifts and letters they received from their fans. And while they were grateful for all their support, they found themselves puzzled by one gift in particular they'd received from a female fan, a dead baby shark preserved in a tube. The brothers elaborated that there had been no note with the gift, it was simply among their fan mail. The oldest of the brothers, Kevin Jonas, said that he was still trying to figure out how someone went about buying a dead shark. Allegedly, a very similar souvenir item can be purchased at tourist shops along Myrtle Beach in South Carolina at the cost of just $13.99. But as for why someone would send a gift like this to their favorite celebrities remains a mystery, probably left unknown. As the holiday seasons roll around, usually we expect more packages than usual to arrive at the doorstep. But in December of 2004, Mary Eipert of Burlington, Iowa found a package with no return address on her porch. Curious, she brought the three-pound box inside and opened it, only to be met with the foul stench of cattle feces over a quart's worth of it. Her husband, Steve Rowland, then noticed that the post office stamp on the outside was a fake and called police to investigate. Local authorities determined that the package was sent to the couple from a website called PoopSenders.com, where people can pay to anonymously have cow feces delivered to any address of their choosing for the low, low price of $15.95. 
Mary and Steve immediately suspected their neighbor named Kimberly, who they had disputes with in the past. When confronted, Kimberly confessed, saying she only meant it as a practical joke. Kimberly was cited for third-degree harassment for her prank, and she said she looks forward to her day in court. Breaking up is hard, especially when your ex refuses to cease contact with you after it's all over. But the occasional drunk text or call can escalate to full-on stalking and, in some cases, threats. In 2006, an unnamed woman from Corpus Christi, Texas was being harassed by her ex-boyfriend and felt she was being threatened when one day she opened her mail to a gruesome discovery. Inside an envelope was a neatly cut, clean, severed finger with an attached message reading, This is my last chance to touch you. Remembering the violence she'd endured while living with her ex in the previous month, the woman immediately felt unsafe and phoned police. Investigators arrived and confirmed that it was a real human finger, but they were unable to determine which finger and who it belonged to. The woman filed an emergency order of protection against him while police searched the Houston suburbs where he was rumored to have moved recently. However, there was no concluding report. But if the man was found, he would have faced misdemeanor charges for harassment, assuming that the finger was his. If only we could know all of the bizarre things that have gone through the mail. If you live during a certain time, the truth may have left you rather uncomfortable. Like when people would send diseases through the mail. Back in 1895, this was allegedly very common, according to Daisy James, a worker at the New York Post Office, whose job it was to open parcels to see if it required a letter postage charge. She revealed many of the strange things that she had encountered daily going through the packages, including dead birds, small animals, glasses, precious jewelry, including engagement and diamond rings, pearls and sapphires, and of course, the fair share of love letters. But what scared some readers was her casual mention that she often encountered various strands of deadly diseases sent by doctors to the National Health Board. She'd handled the likes of smallpox and scarlet fever, to name a few. Even though they were allegedly required to be carefully packaged so as not to risk an outbreak, one mistake could have led to an epidemic spreading across the nation through the mail. And that was enough to make anyone at least a little uneasy, considering one mistake could have killed your ancestors and prevented you from even watching this video. K-pop, or Korean pop music, has only recently become a worldwide phenomenon. But in its home country of South Korea, K-pop bands and artists have had countless loyal fans since the genre's inception. But as we've learned, sometimes the lengths fans will go to in order for their idols to notice them is well past the point of disturbing. K-pop star Taekyon, who was a member of the popular boy group 2PM, said he received an envelope from a fan and opened the letter, thinking it would be standard fan mail. However, he quickly realized the message was a confession of love, which appeared to have been written in red paint, but was actually allegedly written in the fan's own menstrual blood. The letter read, I dedicate to Taekyon my period blood letter. You cannot live without me. The bloody letter, sprinkled with what appeared to be pubic hair, had fans skeptical, thinking it was a hoax, but the fan who sent the letter posted a picture of the confession and of her used sanitary pad to prove it was no joke. The pictures were quickly taken down following a barrage of hate comments from fellow fans telling her she'd gone too far. Though she apologized, she still received a rather large amount of angry comments. 
When mailing packages worldwide, authorities have to be extra careful about making sure the contents of those packages are safe. Many post offices use x-rays to scan packages for suspicious contents. And in late 2014, police in Bangkok, Thailand looked at an x-ray image of a box set to go to Las Vegas and were both shocked and disturbed by what they saw inside. The box, which had been labeled children's toys, contained various human body parts, both from adults and from children, including a baby's head, an infant's foot, which had been severed into three pieces, an adult heart with stab wounds, and a piece of tattooed skin. The contents of the box were sent to doctors to be examined, but the doctors realized that they'd seen these body parts before in a medical museum. Also known as the Museum of Death, the hospital showcases the human remains of murder victims. Through the shipping address and by working with the museum, the Thai authorities were able to track down the senders, two American men who had since fled back to the United States. The two men were identified as 31-year-old Ryan McPherson and an unnamed accomplice who had recently visited the museum while vacationing in Thailand, but cameras didn't capture them stealing anything. However, when questioned, Ryan confessed he'd purchased the pieces while browsing a night market in Bangkok, and he attended to show the body parts to friends back home simply because he found them bizarre. Despite previous brushes with the law, both Ryan and his friend were released without charges, and the pieces were returned to their rightful places in the museum. In the wake of tragedy, we can only hope that the aftermath is calm enough to pick ourselves back up again. But sometimes we aren't so lucky, and devastation only breeds more destruction. In 2001, just a week following the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers on September 11th, major media corporations and congressional offices began receiving anonymous letters with no return address that contained disturbing messages. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. But another letter pointed out the most dangerous contents of the package. You cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Each envelope contained a strain of anthrax spores, which is a disease that, depending on how it's contracted, can lead to anything from black lesions on the skin, fever and flu-like symptoms, to uncontrollable vomiting and even death. Over the course of the next few months, as more letters arrived at numerous news outlets and the desks of senators and congressmen, five would die from contracting anthrax and 17 others would be infected. The FBI launched one of the largest investigations in its history to try to find the sender. Over years, they interviewed more than 9,000 people in six continents following several false leads before landing on a senior biodefense researcher named Dr. Bruce Ivins. Bruce had originally aided the FBI in their investigation since he was considered to be a talented microbiologist, but once authorities questioned him, he showed signs of nervousness and depression. He deflected questions about his involvement, saying he would lose large chunks of time and suffered from memory loss. Bruce was told the FBI planned to pursue charges against him for the anthrax attacks and that the punishment would most likely be the death penalty. Some maintain that Bruce was innocent, but before the trial could commence, he purposefully overdosed on acetaminophen on July 29, 2008, and the investigation was officially closed in 2010. Prison, not a place many people plan on hanging around. So once they're there, it's only natural that they may attempt to get out.
Pascal Paillet was a criminal living in France and he was known for crimes involving robbery, murder, and even helicopters. Pascal had been in and out of prison for a few years, convicted for aggravated assault and conspiracy, so he knew quite well what happened behind bars. But on November 20th, 1997, Pascal was involved in an armored truck robbery where one of the truck's guards was shot and killed. He and Eric Albareo, another of the armored truck thieves, were arrested a little over a year later, and Pascal was sentenced to 30 years in Louine prison for murder. 30 years was much too long for Pascal, however, and soon he began to hatch a plan. In 2001, Pascal exploited the one flaw in the prison's security, the roof. After hijacking a helicopter, an associate of Pascal's, Frederick Mpuku, flew to the prison roof where Pascal was able to climb in and escape. Six days later, Frederick was captured and taken in for questioning in Paris while Pascal stayed hidden. And if it worked once, why not try it again? Pascal returned to Louis Prison in 2003, the same prison he had escaped from two years earlier. This time, he was the rescuer, breaking out his criminal partner Eric and two other friends he had on the inside. Unfortunately for Pascal, he wasn't as well hidden as the time before. In a matter of three weeks, the four men were recaptured and taken back into custody. He was given an additional seven years on his sentence for helping three prisoners escape and six years for his own escape in 2001. Pascal became one of the most closely watched prisoners in France. He was never kept at the same prison for more than six months at a time, and he was also kept in solitary confinement to hopefully keep his feet on the ground. But nothing was enough. It was 2007 when four masked men hijacked a helicopter from an airport in Ken and ordered the pilot to fly 20 minutes north to the prison where Pascal was being held. After landing on the roof at the start of the night shift, they infiltrated the prison with pistols and sawed-off shotguns, freed Pascal from his cell, and took off. The entire prison break lasted less than five minutes. The helicopter landed near the Mediterranean coast, and the five men fled the scene while the pilot was released unharmed. About two months later, he was finally found in Spain with his two accomplices. The frequent flyer was transferred into French custody, where he was sent right back to prison. With a total of 63 years to serve, Pascal will probably spend the rest of his life behind bars. 31-year-old Jay Jr. Sigler was on his eighth year of a 20-year sentence when his friends and mother decided to come and pick him up. Sigler and his lifelong acquaintance Christopher Lee Mickelson had been arrested back in 1990 for the robbery of two tourists. Mickelson was only sentenced with eight years but was not ready to leave his friend behind. The two quickly came up with a plan while in jail a few months before Mickelson was to be released on April 1st of 1998. After that, all he needed to do was to convince Sigler's mother and some friends to help. It was April 11th, only 10 days later, when he returned for his friend with backup. Using an 18-wheeler truck, Mickelson came to the rescue. With him was his sister Kelly Mitchell and her boyfriend John Beeston. They rammed through four prison fences to the Everglades Correctional Institution's courtyard where Sigler was waiting. Sandra Sigler, Jay's mother, 
followed close behind in her own car. The three in the truck, armed, jumped out once they reached the courtyard where Beeston threw a shotgun to Jay. The men continued to fire at the corrections officers as everyone jumped into Mrs. Sigler's car, abandoning the truck. The five fled the scene, making a short stop at a nearby mall to swap vehicles. Jay and Mickelson took one car, while Mrs. Sigler, Beeston, and Mitchell piled into another. Unfortunately for them, the authorities quickly caught up with the three accomplices a little after the car switch when the trio stopped at a gas station, but Jay and Mickelson were long gone. The two had made it all the way to Pompano Beach, Florida, about 40 miles away from the Everglades Correctional Institution, when they realized they were being followed. They sped away down an alley trying to lose their tail, but when they ran through a stop sign at 80 miles per hour, Sigler and Mickelson collided into an oncoming vehicle, instantly killing the 55-year-old driver, Dennis Palmer. Days from the accident, Sigler and Mickelson were both apprehended. Sandra Sigler, forced to testify against the son she tried to free, was able to be released after 13 months. Kelly Mitchell received the same sentencing, and John Beeston got 10 years in prison for his role. Both Jay Jr. Sigler and Christopher Lee Mickelson were sentenced to life in prison. Growing up in south-central Oklahoma, Richard Lee McNair was a man who people believed had a promising future. And being the son of a reserve police officer, most of those around him thought he'd excel in a career of authority. Instead, he became known for his escapes from authority. In November of 1987, 28-year-old Richard McNair was in the middle of robbing a grain elevator building when he came upon two men, Richard Kitzman and Jerome Thies. McNair shot Kitzman four times in his office and later killed Thies outside before fleeing. Police arrested him a few months later after they were able to match McNair's revolver to the weapon that was used at the scene, and he was sentenced to two life sentences in prison for murder, attempted murder, and burglary. It was at the police station when McNair made his first attempt to escape. Using a tube of lip balm as lubricant, McNair slipped out of his handcuffs and ran from the building. The chase ended with him jumping to a tree branch from a three-flight stairway. When the branch broke, McNair landed painfully on his back and was easily apprehended. His second attempt happened in the North Dakota State Penitentiary. On October 9, 1992, he and two other prisoners escaped through a ventilation duct. McNair was a fugitive until the following July when he was captured in Grand Island, Nebraska. Eventually, McNair was transferred to a maximum security federal prison in Louisiana. It was there where his most creative escape took place. He mailed himself out. For months, Richard was set to work in a manufacturing area where he would repair old, torn mailbags. He soon came up with the idea of smuggling himself out with them, and in 2006, over 10 years since his last escape attempt, Richard placed himself under layers of repaired bags and constructed himself a breathing tube for his trip. The shipment was shrink-wrapped and transported outside of the prison to a nearby warehouse where McNair cut himself free and fled to the nearest town. To further humiliate authorities, McNair was spotted running a few hours later by a police officer. The escapee was, by that time, clothed in a tank top and shorts. He tried to convince the officer that he was in town on a roofing project and simply out for a jog. 
Despite McNair accidentally giving two different names during the questioning and not having identification, the officer allowed McNair to return to his jog. The entire incident was even captured via dashboard camera on the officer's patrol car. Throughout his time as a fugitive, McNair stole vehicles and cash from car dealerships knowing how to avoid their security from previous experience as a car salesman. He successfully stayed off the grid for about a year and would taunt his old prison officials. He even sent his old warden a Christmas card. It was October of 2007 when McNair was finally caught in a stolen van in New Brunswick, about 100 miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border. Richard Lee McNair is now currently incarcerated at ADX Florence, a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.